You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Kevin Trenberth. This podcast is supported by the Yan Michelsky Foundation. The whole role of water and the hydrological cycle is a key part of the main damage that occurs. And so the incoming energy, a lot of that goes into evaporating moisture. The air gets warmer, it's thirstier, it can hold more moisture. That moisture then gets caught up in storms and so it rains harder, causing uh, flooding. But in places where it's not raining, things dry out even more than they otherwise would. And as a result, droughts become uh, more intense and, and longer lasting. And so we have this ironical pattern of both extremes of the hydrological cycle, the very dry extremes of drought and the floods, both increasing. And so what is happening is that we're crossing thresholds and the infrastructure that we have typically built, the whole social fabric that we have is based upon the past climate. And so once we cross that threshold, it's what I call the straw that breaks the camel's back syndrome. And so you have a relatively modest change, which I estimate to be in the neighborhood of five to 20% typically. And that is enough to nudge us often so that, in, as you said, instead of $1 billion in damage from say a hurricane, we end up with a hundred billion dollars. Now there are many other cases, but the sort of things that happen are indeed that something floods, the amount of water can no longer be tolerated. Something completely dries out and there's a drought and subsequent wildfires when buildings burn down and so on, suddenly you've gone from something to nothing. It's just, that's an extreme nonlinearity. And another extreme nonlinearity is of course, when people die, you don't recover from that. The U.S. is now back in the Paris Climate Accord to reduce gas emissions. Do you think the goals are achievable since there are no incentives or penalties? Will that reverse the Earth's energy imbalance or will more aggressive measures be needed to help? Yes, so that's a key thing. The, the Paris Agreement was remarkable in that, and this is one of the things about the United Nations, the United Nations works through unanimous agreement. And you have to try to get everybody on board. And often that means watering down language in some shape or form in order to get everyone on board. And there was a lot of negotiations that went on in order to get the Paris Agreement. It was a remarkable agreement in that regard. But as you've noticed, there are no penalties. There are no specified targets. And this is somewhat different than what happened in the Kyoto Protocol quite some time ago, but that was just relating to Annex One countries, the industrialized countries. And that turned out to be a major issue because it didn't have any restrictions or goals at all for places like China and India, which have had uh, tremendous uh, amounts of growth in, in those emissions. And the only real way you can deal with this at the moment is through peer pressure of the countries that are most involved and it includes countries like Brazil and it includes Russia and China and so on. It doesn't seem very practical though. Another option might be through the G7 and that looked a little more likely not too long ago that G7 got rid of Russia 
Europe. That was the G8 and includes uh, Europe and, and China and the U.S. The biggest emitter is China and the U.S. is like now a fairly distant second, but still second. But the U.S. is the leader in terms of the total accumulated amounts. And so I think that if China and the U.S. could get together and really take this on for the whole of the global climate system, then other countries would be forced through, if you like, peer pressure to come on board. And those that didn't can be penalized through various kinds of trade and, and tariff agreements. And ultimately, I think that it may be that something like that has to happen. Relationships between the U.S. and China have deteriorated in the last two or three years as China seems to have become uh, a bit more aggressive. And there's no sign of that kind of thing happening. The other major player that should be involved is the EU, Europe. And uh, EU has always been the most responsible of all of the nations in many respects since the Kyoto Protocol. And so if the EU and China and the U.S. were to set the stage, if you'd like to think of it that way, maybe other countries then would have to come on board and they would be shamed into it if they didn't. And anyone that's involved in international trade could be indeed penalized. And so ultimately, I think it has to come about in some way like that, but it means we've got to have international relationships that work. Unfortunately, the United Nations is quite a weak body and there's no international government. There is nobody in charge internationally, which can wave a magic wand or can act as a conductor and point to everyone and say, all right, it's your turn to do something and so on and make it all happen. And many countries will not give the UN any more authority, if you'd like to think of it that way. But this is the thing which many skeptics do not seem to adequately appreciate, that this is truly a global problem. And yet we have no global infrastructure. There's no global government to take care of this. And the things like the Paris Agreement are the best approximations we have to that, but there's no teeth to it. So that's the way I see it. And also when you get agreements, whether the reporting is accurate enough, what would you like to see in terms of that? That relates partly to technology and modeling, and there has been a growth of international centers. And I think that over the next few years, we could indeed see a situation where there is routine monitoring of carbon dioxide and methane from space in conjunction with modeling. So this relates to sophisticated numerical weather prediction, not modeling all of the sort of things that is done in dealing with weather, except in addition to temperature and humidity and rainfall and so on, you also have carbon dioxide and methane and maybe even some of the other things which are useful like carbon monoxide that you can monitor from space. And you can put together a complete picture as to what is going on. You can even make a forecast for the next week or month as to where all of this stuff will be and by implication, where some of it is coming from. And so ultimately, I think we could grow a system 
that provides an information system, if you like, of what is going on at the very least. And I think that's a very important thing. So with regard to climate change, firstly, we often talk about adaptation as one leg of a stool, and that relates to assessing impacts and vulnerability and building resilience and planning for and adapting to climate change. That's all of the stuff which is done under working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The second leg of the stool is called mitigation. Now, mitigation has a special meaning here that relates to emissions and it relates to cutting emissions and getting emissions under control. That's the working group three of the IPCC. And so we have adaptation and mitigation. But the big question is, what are we adapting to and what are we mitigating? And so this relates to the essential third leg of the stool, which is information. And so we need an information system. And maybe that's the first thing that really gets built up is a solid information system of the sort that I was mentioning, where all of the best available information on not only what's happening in terms of the composition of the atmosphere and everything that's going on and all of the weather and the climate system. So we know where the rainfall is occurring, where the floods are and so on, but also a lot of the social science aspects, all of the impacts and the consequences in various places around the world, the effects on food. Now, many countries don't want you to know how well their crops are doing because that has implications for trade. And more and more of this stuff can actually be done from space. And certain amounts of it will be done from space. And even if it's not publicly released, there's some diplomatic issues relating to that have to be addressed. But having an information system and providing information of who's doing what and what is happening. And then the obvious thing from that is to make a forecast or or a prediction, or at the very least a projection as to what that implies for what's going to happen next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And then you have uh, more exact predictions of what's going on. And I think this is the way in which the whole of the IPCC should evolve. I think they should do away with the IPCC as it stands and develop a a different system, one which is focused on this kind of information system about what is happening, why it is happening, and what it means for the future, and then what can we do about it. In, In many ways, this requires much more of a global approach to things. And so, Europe is a good example. You go back before the EU was formed as to how countries were able to work together and form various kinds of organizations, such as the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. That's a European body that is producing extended range weather forecasts and assimilating a lot of this information and then providing this information to European countries, and a lot of it comes out to the rest of the world as well. And there are some other major centers, such as in the United States, there's probably a couple of them there in NASA and in NOAA and so on, that can play a a major role in this kind of thing. 
and maybe even some smaller centers, such as in Melbourne and Australia and so on, can play a role. And then this information center, this climate information system can feed what is actually happening and needs to happen in terms of adaptation and mitigation and where you get the best bang for your buck, so to speak. That's the way I would see it. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.